If anyone's happened to be uh, happening to be keeping track, it's been about six months. Um, I'll often refer to my uh, series on Second Corinthians, but about six months since I've uh, pulled from it. I've, the last couple of times I've preached, looked at passages from other books. But I thought it was a good time for us to return to Second Corinthians tonight, um, in part uh, because of something mentioned by Pastor Rayburn last Sunday evening that seemed like a good transition into what Paul deals with next in the text. So last Sunday evening, uh, Pastor Rayburn mentioned three books that have been discussed a good bit uh, among pastors and theologians for at least the last few weeks. Uh, Charles Chaput's Strangers in a Strange Land, Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option, and Anthony Esselin's Out of the Ashes. All three of these books wrestle with the question of how the church as a whole and also how Christians as individuals should live out their faith in the midst of an increasingly post-Christian culture, a culture that is increasingly hostile to elements of what we believe. I've just begun to work my way through that list of books, as well as a few others that I think are relevant to the question. I imagine that a number of pastors and other Christians are doing the same. Conversations have already begun on uh, some blogs, at least the blogs one starts looking at in seminary, I guess, uh, and on social media, uh, some of those conversations tending to generate more heat than light. But Christians, and especially Christian leaders, uh, or aspiring Christian leaders, are asking that question right now. They're asking what it looks like for us to be the church in an increasingly post-Christian age. And I suspect we'll be working on how to answer that question for some time. I think that the wave of books that have recently come out will be an important starting point for our future thinking and discussion, but I doubt that these books will be the final conclusion. I'm not really sure any of them would even claim to be. Which means that these are challenges that the American church as a whole and we as individuals will have to wrestle with and continue to think about in the years to come. Most Christians do not currently have a master plan, a solidified or complete strategy for these questions. And I think that's probably good, probably okay for where we're at. But it's important to remember that just because we don't have a full picture of how to handle the years ahead does not mean that we don't already know a lot about what we need to do. In fact, we do. God is faithful. And of course, he calls on his church at times to struggle and to wrestle, to lay hold of the wisdom that it needs to navigate the path that God has laid out for it in one age to the next. But also, much of what is needed is handed to us in a more straightforward way in his word. Our text tonight, the next passage that we'll come to in 2 Corinthians, is one of those texts that gives us a piece of what we need. It doesn't present a system. It doesn't give a detailed plan for what things look like ahead. But it does give us a solid building block to use, one that we will surely need to use. It tells us solid truths that are vital to living out our faith in a hostile culture. We might not know exactly where this piece will fit into some larger system, but we can know that it will be something important for us. And that shouldn't surprise us that we find this here in the text. The Church of Jesus Christ, of course, was born and grew up in a hostile culture. It's the story that we read again and again about the people of God from Genesis to Revelation. And first century Corinth was no exception. 
And our text tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 to 7, verse 1, is, I think, especially relevant for those questions, though maybe not quite in the way that we might think at first, but I'll explain as we get to that. So, with that in mind, please hear now from our text, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here. This exhortation given by the Apostle Paul to your people in Corinth. We pray that you would guide us now as we consider it, give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it, that we might better follow you for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Paul here is addressing a concern that he has for the Christians in Corinth. A threat that he sees and is warning them against. And he lays out for them both why and how that threat is to be resisted. I want to look closer tonight at what his concern is and also what his solution is. And to do that, I want to ask four questions that are essentially looking at the same issue from different angles. I want to ask, what is the threat that Paul is concerned about for the Christians in Corinth? How does that threat play out in their lives and in ours? How is that threat resisted, according to Paul? And then what are the goals of resisting that threat? And so what is the threat? How does it play out? How is it resisted? And what are our goals in the struggle? So let's consider those four questions together now. So first, what is the threat that Paul is concerned about for the Christians in Corinth? What is the actual thing that he's worried about? Well, we get him saying it in verse 14. He's concerned that Christians would be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So there we have it. That's the concern. Now, of course, having heard that, we still need to ask what it really means. It's a metaphor. So then what does Paul mean when he uses that phrase to be unequally yoked with unbelievers? There seems to be two major interpretations of what Paul is getting at here. The first interpretation is that Paul is concerned about too much relational intimacy or social proximity between Christians and non-Christians. He's worried that Christians are getting too close to non-Christians, whether in friendships or in business associations or in other relationships. And he thinks that such relational intimacy is itself a threat to the Christians in Corinth. And, 
So goes the first interpretation. That is his concern here. That is what he's talking about. And we consider that, we need to realize that there are elements of that view that we find in other parts of the Bible. Wisdom literature surely warns us to be careful about who we allow to influence and to shape us, whose counsel we hear, whose uh, instruction we receive. Paul himself, in a related way, in 1 Corinthians 7, clearly states that a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. All of that is important teaching that we get in God's Word. But it also seems unlikely to me that that is what Paul is addressing here in this particular text. It seems unlikely that the threat that Paul is zeroing in on is too much relational intimacy or social proximity between Christians and non-Christians. And that's for a couple reasons, I think. First is that we don't see such a pattern of separation in Paul's own life and in his ministry. As we watch Paul's work and ministry, he's thoughtful, and he's obviously discerning in who he works with in ministry, but we don't see him actively avoiding engagement with or involvement with non-Christians in the world. Instead, we see him talking and engaging with non-Christians all the time. That is the pattern of his life and ministry. But more than that, if the strong antithesis that Paul makes in this passage, if the list of comparisons that he draws up are about the need for social distance between Christians and non-Christians, it would seem to contradict the very advice that Paul gave to the Corinthians in his earlier letter. In 1 Corinthians, we see Paul address several topics on how Christians should relate with non-Christians. But he never really orders a sort of blanket social or relational separation. In fact, at times, it almost feels like the opposite. In 1 Corinthians 10.27, when addressing the question of how Christians should handle an invitation to dinner from an unbeliever, Paul doesn't even really pause to give guidelines as to whether a Christian should or should not attend such a gathering. He moves right past that question. He writes, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, and then from there Paul goes on to talk about what they should do once they're there and food is offered to them that may have been sacrificed to idols. Paul is giving them guidelines, but the things he's focusing on is more the meat and the idols and not really the unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians 14, 22-24, Paul is discussing issues with Christian worship, but in a comment, he seems to assume that outsiders and unbelievers may be present with them in the worship service. But most clearly, in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul clears up a misunderstanding that the Corinthian Christians had over some of his earlier advice. He writes this to clarify. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul, in his advice, was concerned about the influence of hypocrites, who professed to be Christians, but were not living that way. But he makes it emphatically clear that his charge to avoid such hypocrites did not imply severing social ties with non-Christians. He doesn't even specify that they should just spend time with the good non-Christians. He seems to go out of his way to include even greedy and swindling and sexually immoral and idolatrous non-Christians. 
And so Paul does not tell, he does not call Christians to go out of the world. He finds that point so obvious that he doesn't even really engage with the idea. He moves on right from there. And so it seems unlikely that Paul is suddenly making that kind of an argument here in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, 1. While Paul is clear on marriage, while he's clear on the question of who we allow to influence us, and of course we would extend that to our children and to others in our community, he'll focus on influence, but he does not call on Christians to withdraw from the non-Christian world or to cut social ties with unbelievers in the broad way that this text has been taken by some. If we grant that, if that's not what Paul is getting at, then we're of course left with the question of what Paul is talking about here. Commentator Paul Barnett makes what I think is a convincing case that Paul's concern here is in the realm of worship rather than the realm of social ties. Barnett argues that Paul's main concern, the main threat that he sees, is that Christians in Corinth need to be diligent to separate themselves from the idolatrous temple cults in Corinth. And there are a number of reasons why this fits well with the text. First, Barnett points out that Paul had needed to give that kind of exhortation to the Corinthians before, that charge to avoid idolatry. And that in passages where he did that, especially 1 Corinthians 10, he used similar language to what we see here. He set up a similar antithesis as well. And that same antithesis between Christ and demons, between true worship and idol worship, seems to be the center of this passage as well. Barnett points out that this is where the text goes in verses 14 through 16. Paul says that Christians are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then, as one might ask what exactly he means, he goes on to ask a series of five questions that seem to build up in a climax at the fifth. And that fifth question, in effect, answers what he means at the beginning. Paul contrasts righteousness and lawlessness. He talks about light and darkness, Christ and Belial and alternative name for Satan, the believer and the unbeliever. And then, as a climax, he asks this, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? That last item seems to be the focal point of Paul's concern. He's worried not about Christians joining non-Christians in general, but about Christians specifically joining non-Christians in idolatrous worship. And there are a couple other aspects of the text that would seem to strike us as supporting this view as well, I think. First, when Paul references a text from the Old Testament as a general practice, he usually has in mind more than just the words that he quotes in his letter. He's normally thinking of the context of that Old Testament passage as a whole. Peter Bala points out that this is no less true in 2 Corinthians 6. And so, in other words, as Paul is citing these, this list of Old Testament texts, He's not just using their words, but he has in mind the subject matter that they were dealing with. And Paul draws together, he melds together a number of Old Testament verses in verses 16 through 18. They include verses from Leviticus, from Ezekiel, from Isaiah, from 2 Samuel. There's a lot going on in those couple of verses. But one thing if you go through and you look them up, that you begin to note is that the majority of the texts that he cites come in the context of God dealing with Israel's idolatry. And even specifically, Israel's idolatry after they had been removed 
from physical proximity to pagans, but when they had still brought both the idols and the idolatry along with them. Finally, it's also worth reflecting on what Paul is likely emphasizing when he chooses the word yoke. The word's used only a handful of times in the New Testament, but its focus seems to almost always be on whose burden the person wearing it is bearing, whom they are serving. So Paul uses the term in Galatians 5 to describe submission to the laws of the Judaizers. He calls it a yoke of slavery. In 1 Timothy 6, he uses the phrase under a yoke to describe someone who is literally a slave. In Acts 15, Peter also uses it to describe the religious and ceremonial demands of the Judaizers. And of course, probably the most familiar text for us comes from Matthew 11, where Jesus uses the word to describe someone becoming his follower, saying to them, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, when the New Testament speaks of yokes, the emphasis seems to be on whom they cause us to serve whether a slave serving a master, an individual serving the demands of Pharisaical Judaism, or a disciple serving Christ. It's not used often as a metaphor, not used at all, it would seem, as a metaphor for social or relational intimacy in the New Testament, but as a focus on whom we serve, who owns us. And so it would seem that the point Paul's making here is not about our relationship to unbelievers so much as our relationship to their gods. The question is how we relate to their idols. Are we worshipping them? Are we also serving them? Are we allowing ourselves to take up their yoke, to serve those idols alongside unbelievers? That would seem to be the threat that Paul is dealing with in this text. So if that's the threat that Paul is concerned about, it leads us to our next question. How does that threat play out? What does it actually look like? And here, to really understand what Paul is dealing with as he writes to the Corinthians, we need to be aware of how thoroughly idolatry was woven in to every aspect of the Greco-Roman world. Idolatry was everywhere. And it was connected to just about everything. And so it was usually a smooth transition from engaging with God's good gifts to engaging in idolatry. It wasn't an abrupt change to go from one to the other in that world. Idolatry was woven into the marketplace. We can read in 1 Corinthians of how the meat market was all tied up with sacrifice to idols, but it was true of employment as well. Guilds were not secular institutions. They had religious components too. Social life was often tied up with pagan idol worship. Family life often revolved around the worship of household gods and a family cult. Political life included not only worship of the emperor, but often a specific local pantheon for the neighborhood as well. Another way to think of it is that idol worship was part of community solidarity. The Greco-Roman world did not have the concept of a sacred-secular divide that is so common in our culture today. And so the Christians didn't need to seek out idolatry. It was already everywhere. And the line between engaging with God's gifts and engaging with the idolatry that was built up around those gifts by the world was difficult, often very difficult to navigate. And so as we think about that, we can hear that. 
We can hear what the Greco-Roman world was like and why this was such a pressing problem for them. And as we think of it in that world seems so different from our own, we begin to wonder then if this text really has much to say to us. As long as we're not wandering into temples of other religions and worshiping their gods, as long as we're not supporting some sort of a religious relativism that would see all religions as the same, that would see them as merely different paths to the same God, then it would seem, we might think, that we're not engaging in the type of idolatry that Paul is concerned with. So there we go. We're good. Sermon over. We can move on. Of course, not really. Because even though we live in a secular age, it is not an age without gods, or at least not an age without idols. A few people have commented that a recent book by R.R. Reno, the editor of First Things, titled Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society, should also be part of that group of books that are helping guide individuals and churches in understanding our cultural moment and the church's place in it. In the book, Reno gives his analysis on where we are as a culture. And one of the things he points out in the book and also elaborates on in a lecture that he recently gave about the book is that to understand the moral sense of our culture right now, you need to understand its gods. We often talk, he points out, about our culture promoting moral relativism. But he argues that's not really an accurate way to describe it. It might be right to say that our culture promotes a sort of non-judgmentalism, but in terms of how people make moral decisions and how they tell their children to make such decisions, they're actually following a complex system of honoring their gods. Reno points out that we have softer idols today. He writes that our culture lacks the theatrical bombast of Nazism or the theoretical relentlessness of communism. We do not worship blood, soil, or the proletariat. The idols on offer are softer and smaller. They are the smiling hearth gods of postmodern materialism. Health, wealth, and pleasure. Later, Reno adds, for those who can afford it, a fourth idol of success or achievement. Health, wealth, achievement, and pleasure. These are the hearth gods, the soft idols of our culture. And our culture's ethic is based often on the difficult task of balancing our service to each of those gods. So our culture expects that people will go ahead and serve the god of pleasure. But Reno points out most communities are not truly relativistic. They don't teach their children that anything goes. They don't encourage them to be hedonists. Instead, what they're often urging them to do is to make, quote-unquote, healthy choices. By which they mean that they want their children, they want others to be careful that their devotion to the God of pleasure does not compromise their devotion to the God of health, or of wealth, or of achievement. Devotion to one God is used to curb excessive devotion to another. And on the other side of the equation, when students when especially those high achievers are run into the ground with worry and busyness, when they're told that their worth hangs on their achievement, when they are serving that pitiless God relentlessly, they find release 
from the demands of that harsh God of achievement, often by throwing themselves at the God of pleasure on Friday and Saturday night. Devotion to these four gods of postmodern materialism find their starkest form, maybe, on many college campuses, but they shape the world around us, too. And just as as in the Greco-Roman world, they're so integrated into our culture that we can often smoothly transition from engaging with God's good gifts into idolatry almost without noticing it. Because we do struggle with these idols, don't we? And none of them are in themselves bad things, rather the, the things the idols are made of. It's good to be healthy. It is a blessing to have wealth. It can be good to achieve, and pleasure rightly experienced is a gift from God. But each of these things can also be an idol. Each of these things can become, to use Paul's metaphor, a yoke. An idol that we serve. A hearth god whom we worship. A masters whose demands we take upon ourselves. We become unequally yoked when we join unbelievers in their idolatrous service to these gods. The Christian who places achievement who places their status at their job, their sense of significance or meaning that their job gives them, over the well-being of their marriage or their family has taken on that yoke of the God of achievement. Whether he or she works among pagans or among fellow Christians is not really the central issue. If they are serving the idols of the unbelieving world, then at work they have become unequally yoked even if the office is filled with fellow believers. The Christian who struggles with and engages again and again with pornography without seeking help or repentance has taken on the yoke of the God of pleasure. Individuals in our congregation started the great Genesis 39 ministry we now have because they recognized that men and women in our congregation needed help in battling this idol. We recognize that many in our number struggled with it, struggled with that yoke, and that it is, in fact, a demanding yoke and not one that can be broken easily, often one that cannot be broken alone. And the same is true with the gods of health and wealth. The Christian parent who is more concerned with the physical effects that this or that sin might have on their child rather than the spiritual effects. The Christian who spends their time gazing at homes they wish were theirs online, or who sees how another is doing financially and is filled with covetousness, or who has wealth already, but guards it selfishly and fearfully. We, as Christians today, are not so unlike the Christians in Corinth. We slide quite easily into the idolatry of the world around us. And of course, that is always a problem. It's always a serious danger. But I think that our cultural moment makes it even more of a problem for us today. Because our cultural moment means that those idols can be used against us when the culture turns against our faith. Now, I don't think it seems that we are anywhere near a place where our health or physical well-being will be threatened for denying the secular orthodoxies of our day. But wealth and achievement are increasingly on the table. As not only the state, but increasingly employers demand that all affirm certain secular orthodoxies that are contrary to the Christian faith, 
one wonders in the future how being a Christian could affect one's career. Patrick Denine summarized Rod Dreher, uh, writing that Dreher concludes one of his chapters in his book with the bracing observation that the seed of the church in modern America will not necessarily be the blood of the martyrs, but a smaller paycheck from a less prestigious job, a path to neither reputation among one's peers nor perhaps even sainthood among the faithful. Now, of course, no one wants to lose income or social standing, but that itself is not really the issue. The issue is how we would respond if those things were threatened. If we see them as good gifts being taken away, we may mourn the loss of them, but we'll be able to maintain our faithfulness to Christ. But then what if those things are our idols? What if we bear their yoke? What will we do then? That sums up part of Rod Dreher's concern. He writes, Given how much Americans have come to rely on middle-class comfort, freedom, and stability, Christians will be sorely tempted to say or do anything asked of us to hold on to what we have. That, he writes, is the way of spiritual death. There's a lot that we don't, do not know about what is to come and how we will face it. But one thing that we can know, one thing that we can do, is to take an assessment of where our loyalties are. We can look to our shoulder and we can ask what yokes we might be bearing. What could the world threaten to take from you that would cause you to hesitate in your Christian confession? And when you ask yourself that question, when you examine your heart, I'd urge you to do it with your imagination sort of tuned to the mundane and the ordinary. It's one thing to imagine being dramatically confronted with some harsh penalty, while others look on and needing, in defiance of some sort of snarling authority figure, to confirm the central tenets of our faith in Jesus Christ. Thinking of such scenes can be sort of inspiring. They can be the stuff of good movie trailers. They can also tempt us to be motivated by pride. But I wouldn't think of that kind of a situation. It seems unlikely at this point to come about. But what about something more mundane? What about a push not to deny the deity of Christ, but still to deny the express command or the teaching of God in his word? What if you're not asked to make the denial in some sort of grand gesture, but just a small one? Not on a stage, but in a private office, before a bland-looking supervisor and with no one else looking on. And suddenly, your wealth or prestige feels like it's on the line. And you know that if you just give in, no one will probably hear much or say much about it. But on the other hand, if you take a stand, probably more people will misunderstand what you meant by it than will understand it correctly. If you put yourself in that situation, or something like it, how would you start to respond? I think that in situations like that, suddenly a whole lot of rationalizations can come to mind. Especially the more that we think about the idol that we might lose if we don't give in. Idols can always be taken away from us. Threatening them is, in fact, a great way to pressure someone. Faithful witness, 
perseverance under persecution, and maybe especially what some have termed the polite persecution that we might be more likely to face in our settings, these require us to renounce our idols. So one of the first steps in being a faithful Christian in a hostile culture is to check and to renounce those idols that we have shared with unbelievers around us. Which leads to our third question. How do we do that? How do we resist being unequally yoked? How do we resist the yokes of the gods of the world around us? Paul's answer to the Corinthians is that we must recognize the presence of God among us, among us, his people. We must recognize, as he says in verse 16, that we are the temple of the living God. That's really the theme of the verses that Paul quotes from the Old Testament. In verse 16, he says, he quotes, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then in verses 17 and 18, I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The conclusion Paul draws from all of this in 7.1 is, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, it's the closeness of God among us that makes it possible, that motivates us to resist these idols and to shed their yokes. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If you have a greater good, it relativizes the lesser goods that you have. You see this, for example, in marriage and family. Getting married and having kids changes people. It changes their priorities. Things that used to be important to them may not go away, but they often become less important. And usually that's a good thing. That is supposed to happen. Hobbies are good, but hobbies often get relativized when a spouse comes into the picture. And they tend to get even more relativized when kids come into the picture. Often they cease to exist at that point. But while annihilation of other things is not the goal, those things are supposed to be relativized. Because something better and more important has come into the picture. And so other things get downgraded, they get put in their proper place. And overall, it's not an act of oppression when that happens, it's a joy. We might miss things that get downgraded sometimes, but we never go back. Your wife or husband is worth so much more than those things that were downgraded. Your kids mean so much more than that hobby that you don't really get to do so often anymore. Paul's point is that this is infinitely more true with God. If God, the creator of the universe, the maker of all things, the immortal and invisible and only wise God, if this God has, as verse 16 says, made his dwelling among us, if he walks among us, if he is our God and we are his special people, if he has welcomed us and called us his sons and daughters, and if he's urged us, us, us little and pathetic and often petty and selfish creatures, he's called on us to call him our Father. Then how much at that point does a job title matter? What is the relative value of a bigger house, 
or a bigger bank account? How important should a more sculpted body or access to fancier food and wine be to us? These things are not bad, but the presence of and the intimacy with God that we have as believers relativizes all of those things. They can still be good things, but they are good gifts from God. When we see them in proportion to God himself, they can then take their proper place in our hearts. They are a gift and no longer a yoke, a created thing and no longer an idol. Of course, that fact, that reality, is one of those things that is much easier to agree with abstractly, much easier to say out loud, and honestly much easier to preach about than it is to actually do, which is part of the frustration of the Christian life. So then just briefly, how do we actually begin to do it? How do we know God's presence with us? Not just cognitively, but on a deeper level. How do we know it at the same gut level that we know that we want our idols? How do we bring that knowledge as deep into our hearts as our idol worship can burrow? so that that knowledge can push out our desire for such idols. In a lot of ways, of course, that is another sermon. But briefly, we should remember that the way that God does that is not through an unusual means. He does it so often through prayer and scripture and worship. Prayer and scripture and worship are where we hold in front of us again what is real. We practice it. And it sinks a little bit deeper down into our hearts and our guts. But if we're not holding that in front of us again and again and again, then it doesn't sink in. Of course, none of us are as good as we should be with applying those things. Some of us are, of course, farther along than others. Many of us, myself included, have a lot of growing to do. We can struggle to do these things. We can feel like there is no point. Why read the same Bible story again that we've heard before? Why pray about the same things we've prayed about so many times? Why sing the same hymns or go through the same liturgy that we've already gone through before? But it is then that we need to remind ourselves again that we are not just gathering information in these activities. We are, as one 17th century writer put it, Practicing the presence of God. It takes practice for us to become more aware of the reality that God is with us. We tend to need lots of practice. So, where does that leave us? We said that the threat that Paul is concerned about is that Christians are taking the yoke of idols onto themselves. The way it plays out is that we can smoothly slide from engaging with God's good gifts to engaging in and idolatry of those good gifts. And the way that we resist that is to become more and more aware of God's presence among us, among his chosen people. And so that brings us to our last question. What are the goals of resisting the threats of the yoke of idols? What is the point of it all? Why do we engage in the struggle? There are lots of good and some very obvious answers to that. At least one is right there in our text in 7.1. It says that we are to seek these things to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Of 
course, we want to express rightly our love and our devotion to God, our thanks for what he has done for us. And we want to persevere in the faith, to attain to the resurrection of the faithful. We want to strengthen ourselves against the polite persecution that may come our way one day. We want to experience more purely the joy of bearing the yoke of Christ without the interference of the oppressive yokes of idols. All of these things are reasons why we seek to not bear these yokes. And many more exist beyond that. But I want to just point out briefly one other goal that's more implicit in our text, I think, than it is explicit. It's interesting to look up the Old Testament verses Paul draws from in this text, those that he sort of mashes together in verses 16 through 18. It's instructive. It reinforces, as I mentioned, the theme of idolatry on Paul's mind. But it brings up another theme, too. Repeatedly in those texts that Paul is quoting, the author is concerned with what sort of picture Israel's condition would present to the unbelieving Gentile nations around them what their way of life would say about Yahweh, their God, and who he was. It actually comes up again and again. In Ezekiel 37.27, which is quoted, it's the theme in the very next verse. In Isaiah 52.11, which is also quoted by Paul, it's the verse right before it that concerns what the world will see and what it will mean to them. In Ezekiel 20, it comes up more than once, actually. God's dwelling with his people, and their turning to him and away from their idols is again and again aimed at what it says, about what it preaches about Yahweh to the unbelievers around them. And if that was true for Israel, it's even more true for us on this side of Pentecost. Because while God was always concerned with the nations, The gospel has gone out to them as never before since Pentecost. And it doesn't go out only to friendly cultures. In fact, it often makes surprising progress in those cultures that seem most hostile. And we need to recognize that and remember it. Our situation is, of course, not that unique. God has done far more amazing things than if he were to forge renewed paths for the gospel in our culture. And it's with a view to being instruments in his work, in our culture, that we are also to pursue him and to shed our idols. We need to make sure that we are not unequally yoked alongside unbelievers, not only for our own sake, but so that God might then also use us as instruments in removing the yoke of idolatry from the unbeliever as well, that that he or she might exchange it for the yoke of Christ. This is another reason why it seems to me a misreading of our text to see it as being primarily concerned with severing social ties with non-Christians. It's not social ties we're called to sever, but idolatrous ones. And freed from those ties, we are called then to engage with unbelievers around us, not to withdraw, so that they too might be freed from the yoke of their idols. Such a call, of course, is not easy. I don't mean to make it sound that it is. And I also don't intend to imply that we will see a lot of fruit right out of the gate. As Charles Chaput points out, we are not to have some sort of naive optimism about these things. But we are to have Christian hope. 
In Shafu's book, he directs the reader to several paragraphs of a work by Jorge Bergoglio, who is now known to us better as Pope Francis, in his work, The Joy of the Gospel. He directs us to these paragraphs, and I want to read just a portion of them. He writes that one of the most, more serious temptations which stifles boldness and zeal is a defeatism which turns us into disillusioned pessimists. Nobody can go off to battle unless he is fully convinced of victory beforehand. If we start without confidence, we have already lost half the battle and we bury our talents. While painfully aware of our own frailties, we have to march on without giving in, keeping in mind what the Lord said to St. Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Christian triumph is always a cross, yet a cross which is at the same time a victorious banner, born with aggressive tenderness against the assaults of evil. The evil spirit of defeatism is brother to the temptation to separate before its time the wheat from the weeds. It is the fruit of an anxious and self-centered lack of trust. He goes on to point out that in many cultures, culture has looked more and more like a desert as the people have moved away from faith in God. But he says, yet it is, the start, it is starting from the experience of this desert, from this void, that we can again discover the joy of believing. It's vital and important for us as men and women. In the desert, we rediscover the value of what is essential for living. Thus, in today's world, there are innumerable signs, often expressed implicitly or negatively, of the thirst for God, for the ultimate meaning of life. And in the desert, people of faith are needed, who by the example of their own lives point out the way to the promised land and keep hope alive. In these situations, we are called to be living sources of water from which others can drink. At times, this becomes a heavy cross, but it was from the cross, from his pierced side, that our Lord gave himself to us a source of living water. Let us not allow ourselves to be robbed of hope. Paul reminds us in our text tonight that God is in our midst. He has called us to be faithful to him, both for our own good and for the life of the world. And so, as he says, since we have these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Amen.